If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1 as we uh, continue this evening uh, looking at this uh, wonderful epistle of Colossians. We'll be in uh, chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 uh, tonight, though we will read uh, down through uh, from 9 through verse 14. So uh, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now as we look tonight at uh, verses 9 through 11, we have before us this remarkable prayer of Paul on behalf of the church in Colossae. And I say remarkable because it truly is remarkable. In the span of so few words, he says so much. And in saying much, he teaches much. By these words, he shows us not only the content of his prayer, but also, as it were, a thumbnail sketch of the Christian life. These verses give us a thumbnail sketch of the Christian life. And so as we proceed this evening, we'll walk through the particulars in detail, but I think it's probably helpful at the outset to get the, the general lay of the land. And so in verse 9, he starts with the what we might call the cognitive aspect, that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He starts with the cognitive or intellectual, but he doesn't stay there. In verse 10, he moves to the practical purpose of that knowledge of God's will. And the practical purpose then is that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, please him in all respects. And then he moves from the intellectual to the practical, then verse 11, to the persevering aspect of the Christian life, if we can term it such. So it starts with the intellectual, moves to the practical, and then culminates in the, the persevering aspect of the Christian life. So let's begin in verse 9. Paul says there, since the day that they had heard of the salvation of the Colossians, they had not ceased to pray for them. You'll remember that uh, as we've considered uh, in weeks gone by, this church at Colossae was not planted by Paul. This was not a city that he himself had evangelized. And so he had heard of their salvation. He learned it from uh, Epaphras, this fellow bondservant, faithful servant of Christ on their behalf. And he says that since the day he heard of it, he had not ceased to pray for them. And the request that he makes in prayer is that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And by this, I do not suppose that Paul is referring to the the hidden things of God's will, the exhaustive particulars or the uh, things concerning the future and so on. Should I marry this woman or that woman? Should I stay here in Colossae or immigrate to Rome? Rather, I think that what Paul has in mind when he prays that they be filled with the knowledge of God's will is the revealed will of God, sometimes known as God's will of command. In other words, 
what they must believe and what they must do. These two branches of God's will have sometimes been referred to as the law and the gospel. The law refers to the things that we must do. The gospel refers to the good news that we must believe. It's God's command, in fact, that we believe the gospel. It is God's command that we obey his law. And so Paul asks that these Christians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And then he modifies this request they be filled with the knowledge of God's will, modifies it by asking that this be in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And I would understand the, the, the word spiritual to modify both the wisdom and the understanding. Spiritual wisdom, spiritual understanding. It is spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding because of the nature of the subject matter, the subject matter being that it pertains to spiritual things, the things of God. And it is also spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding because of the source. The source of this wisdom and understanding is the Holy Spirit. And as to the pairing of these two things, wisdom and understanding, this is not uncommon if you think back to the Old Testament wisdom literature. And so, for instance, Job 28, 28, we read, Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Fear the Lord is wisdom, to depart from evil is understanding. These two things go hand in hand in a, in a parallel way. Also, Proverbs 4, 5, acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Again, they go hand in hand. Proverbs 4, 7, the beginning of wisdom is acquire wisdom. And with all you're acquiring, get understanding. Now, given the parallelism that is so often found there between wisdom and understanding, I don't suppose that we need to think of them as being widely different from one another. I think the words of, of John Davenant are helpful in terms of, of understanding what this wisdom and understanding is, and he puts it this way. He says, this wisdom, although as to its essence it is a certain perfection of the intellect, yet as to its matter and use it is also practical and moral. Wisdom, therefore, is not only the light of the soul, but a certain healthiness and perfection of it. The light of mere knowledge is sometimes communicated to the wicked, for many know the will of God, but they do it not. No, they plainly hate it. But the light of wisdom always renders a man pious, because it at once inclines the will to that which is apprehended by the intellect. And you can see, you can see the idea that he's going for is that this wisdom is not simply, it's not simply knowledge, knowledge of facts, but wisdom turns not only our minds and our understanding, but also affects our wills, our desires to do these good and godly things. It renders a man pious, as he said, renders a man godly. And so Paul prays that these Christians would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He desires that they would know the truth of God and not simply that they would know it, but that they would know it in wisdom and understanding. And again, that's to know God's truth in a pious and practical way. And the practicality comes there in verse 10 as follows. And, the, and this is the, uh, the purpose for which they be filled with this wisdom and understanding. And we see it there, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God's will is to be an applied knowledge, not simply 
a knowledge of things that are known and then forgotten about, practically speaking, but a knowledge of things that are known and then put into practical use. I think the Huguenot preacher Jean Dale expressed this quite well when he said that the end of our instruction in the knowledge of God is a godly life and not our mental amusement or the gratification of our curiosity with a vain delight. We do not call that man an architect who can fluently discourse of buildings, but him who has the art to erect them. And we do not give the name and glory of a captain to one who can eloquently speak of war, but to him who can manage it and is able to conduct an army skillfully and can withstand and fight an enemy and acquit himself in all the functions of a military command. Nor can we regard him as a Christian who knows the duties of the faithful and can pertinently explain them, but who performs them not. This science consists in life and not in talk, in the heart and in the doings, not in the brain and in the tongue. Let this then be our sole aim in this holy study. Let us learn not simply to know or to speak, but to do, carefully reducing to practice all the precepts of this heavenly doctrine. This is practical knowledge. This is knowledge that is to ultimately bear fruit in every good work. The knowledge of God's will is to lead us to walk in a manner worthy of God. And when he speaks of walking worthy of God, we shouldn't suppose that Paul is is thinking that these people would be sinless from, from this point forward. He's not. But he is asking that they would live lives as Christians that would be worthy of the Lord. Not in the sense that they are worthy of the Lord as he is in himself. Paul had seen the risen Christ. Paul had been caught up to the third heaven and seen the glory of the Lord. Obviously, our Christian lives are never going to be equivalent to the full glory of the Lord. But what he does ask is that they would walk in a manner worthy of God. And by that, he means that they would walk in a manner that is appropriate towards God. And I think uh, he put it to the Ephesians in a, in a parallel way in Ephesians 4.1 when he exhorted them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which they had been called. They had been called to Christ. They had been called to follow after him. And this is the worthy calling that he has in view here. He wants them to live lives in such a way that it corresponds to the God who called them out of darkness and into his glorious light. And he proceeds to speak in particular of how this walking worthily of the Lord is to be done. He speaks first of pleasing the Lord in all respects, or more literally, in all pleasing. In other words, this is to be their sole aim in all that they do, is to be pleasing to the Lord. Their main aim, at least. Pleasing to the Lord in all things, as it is expressed elsewhere, to do all that they do, whether they eat or drink or whatever they do, to do all to the glory of God, to do all so as to be well-pleasing to him. That is to be our aim. And this then works its way out, obviously, in us bearing fruit in every good work. A couple of weeks ago, we saw up in uh, Colossians 1.6 how the gospel is not a barren thing, but upon good soil it produces a crop. As Jesus said in the parable, some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God produces fruit in the lives of believers. 
And though, as uh, we considered uh, last Sunday morning from Genesis 15, the good works of believers do not contribute to our justification, nevertheless, good works are necessary in the lives of believers to demonstrate that the faith which we profess is alive and not dead, that the faith is true and not false, bearing fruit in every good work. Just think to the words of Jesus in John 15 when he said, I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove yourselves to be my disciples. In other words, our fruitfulness is an evidence of our being united to Christ. And fruitfulness is a, is a wonderful thing. We have a few uh, fruit trees in our yard at home. We've got, got a few apple trees and uh, a plum tree. This year we planted a couple of, couple of small cherry trees. They say that it takes five years for, for one of these little cherry saplings to produce fruit. And it's a long wait, but I'm looking forward to it. And uh, our, our plum tree this year is doing better than it ever has before. It's got these, got these little plums on it. Unfortunately, some have already dropped down before they're ripe, but fruitfulness is... A great thing. I love going out there, looking at the fruit, seeing how it's doing. That's why I planted the tree. I wanted to get some plums. I wanted to get some apples. And even so it is with us as Christians. The Lord saved us for good works, for, for good fruit. We read this in Ephesians 2.10, that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Now, it's true that the Lord doesn't need our good works, but he delights in the good fruit of his people, even as we delight in the, in the good fruit of a tree. And he wants to use us for his purposes. And we also need to bear in mind the warning that Jesus gave in Luke 13, that those trees which do not produce fruit are in danger of being cut down. You'll remember that scene where the man said, I planted this tree, and I come back, I get no fruit. And the servant said, well, let's give us one year. We'll, we'll work around it. We'll dig around it. We'll uh, put some manure on it. And let's, see, let's see what we've got. And the master said, okay, you got one year, and we'll see. We need to remember that those trees that do not produce good fruit are in danger of being cut down. And we should also note what kind of fruit the Lord is looking for in us. And we see this in, in Paul's prayer here. His request is not simply that we bear fruit, not simply that we do some good works, that we bear fruit in every good work, that we not only walk in some of the Lord's ways, but in all of the Lord's ways. And James tells us on the negative side that whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. To live pleasing to the Lord, we must be serious about obeying the Lord in all things. Paul prays that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. And then he goes on, and this is interesting, into verse 10, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And if we follow if we've been following Paul's train of thought here in this prayer, it's almost as if there's something reciprocal that's going on here. 
as if true knowledge of the will of God would lead to good works, and then as if engagement in good works will result in a further increase in the knowledge of God. As John Gill expressed it, the apostle had prayed before for an increase in the knowledge of the will of God previous to his request for the putting of it in practice and now suggests that an increase in the knowledge of God himself may be expected in a practical use of means and attendance upon the ordinances of Christ and a diligent performance of good works. In other words, just as the knowledge of God is to lead us into practice, so the practice of this knowledge of God leads us back then to the knowledge of God again. And we grow in the knowledge of God, and we do good works, and we grow in the knowledge of God, and we do more good works. Just think of how Jesus said it in John seven seventeen: If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. There is a sense in which the more of God's truth that we put into practice, the more we will come to know the truth of God. And then in verse 11, Paul asks that these believers would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. Now Paul knows, and we do too if we are honest, that we are weak. Very, very weak in ourselves. Now sometimes we are more aware of our weakness than others, but if we are honest, we are very weak. And sometimes that is painfully, painfully evident to us. And hence he prays that they be strengthened by God's glorious might. And then he gives the reason for this request of strengthening. And the reason he prays this is so that these believers might attain to all steadfastness and patience with joy. This prayer for strengthening is because Paul knows that the cross, the cross of some kind, is waiting for these believers. Trials are either present with them now or else will be in the future. Trials come in all shapes and sizes. Paul wrote to Timothy that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12, there's the cross of persecution. Our Lord Jesus puts it broadly, John 16.33, in this world you have tribulation. The cross comes in all shapes and sizes. Hence, the need to be strengthened with the Lord's glorious might so that we might attain to this steadfastness and patience. Steadfastness has to do with our standing up under the weight of the crosses that come to us. And then patience has to do with the duration so that we can outlast the crosses and trials that come to us. And he prays, that we meet these trials with joy. Praise that we be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously or with joy. I don't know if it's just me, but one of the things that I like about the internet is it gives you access to all of this old stuff that you would never have access to 
unless uh, unless you happen to to see it on TV at a random time or something. And so uh, and so I love uh, sometimes going back and listening to uh, the recordings of some of Winston Churchill's like World War II speeches to Parliament, and it's, it's really great. And when uh, when Winston Churchill gave his his famous speech to Parliament in May of 1940, and he said that he had nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. He went on to say this, and uh, I, I would recommend that you listen, look it up, listen to it yourself so you can hear it in Winston Churchill's wonderful accent, but it's great. He says, we have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and suffering. You ask, what is our policy? I can say it is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word. It is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory, however long and hard the road may be. For without victory, there is no survival. Now, the situation that Winston Churchill described is, I think, analogous to the warfare that you and I find ourselves in as soldiers of Christ. Viewed from the perspective of the flesh, we have an ordeal of the most grievous kind. It's not easy standing up to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And our aim is victory at all costs. Victory in spite of every terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. And left to ourselves, we would lose. We would lose badly. We would lose quickly. But the good news is that God himself strengthens us with all power so that we may endure and carry on in the struggle. And again, this struggle is not simply one that is to be carried out in a stoic way with a stiff upper lip, but this is one which is to be carried out with joy. And God himself supplies us with the joy, even in the midst of trials. Indeed, what we find in this entire prayer is that it shows us that God supplies us with all things necessary for our Christian lives. This is what Paul is doing here. He's making requests that God would graciously give these things to these believers, that he fill them with the knowledge of his will, that he would enable them to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, to bear fruit in every good work, to be strengthened for the purpose of steadfastness and patience and joy. The Christian life is admirably mapped out in this prayer, again, starting with knowledge, moving to practice, culminating in perseverance and the fact that these are requests in prayer shows us, indeed, that it is God's divine power that gives us everything necessary for life and godliness, as Peter says in 2 Peter 1.3. And so, Christian friend, Christian life is not easy. The road before you is hard. But remember Paul's prayer here. And look to the Lord for all that you need for life and godliness and Make petition to the Lord, both for yourself and for your brothers and sisters. Adopt these words. These are, these are wonderful words to pray for yourself and to pray for others so that we can boldly conquer and endure. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the...
great truth, great doctrine that is contained in such a small span of words. And Lord, we ask that indeed you would grant to us all of these wonderful blessings which Paul prayed for the Colossians. Lord, we ask that you would grant them to us, that you would grant them to our church here, that you would grant them to your church universal, to every believer. Lord, that indeed we would grow in your knowledge, the knowledge of your will. Lord, that indeed we would bear fruit in every good work. And Lord, that indeed we would be patient, steadfast in perseverance, and that we would do so with joy, knowing the good news of the gospel and being strengthened by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.